Hi everyone, Tommy here, to let you know that you can now pre-order the St. Dymphna's Playbook book due out on November 5th from Ave Maria Press. You can order wherever books and ebooks are sold. We'll put the link to the book on Ave's website in the show notes, so you can go and check it out and use the code BEWELL, all one word, to get 25% off. Thanks so much! Servant of God, Catherine Doherty once said, With God, every moment is the moment of beginning again. Welcome to the 101st episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, and one in heaven. I love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to remember that it's never too late. It's never too late to turn things around, never too late to reach out for help, never too late to find God in the darkness. Every moment is a moment of beginning again. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. The topic of prayer and mental health symptoms is one that gets sent my way from time to time, and today we're going to narrow in on one aspect of that topic. What is the best way to get back into a spiritual or prayer routine when you're out of it due to a mental illness? From depression to anxiety to grief to trauma to scrupulosity and OCD, our mental health can have a serious impact on our faith life and prayer life specifically. All too often we hear the line, faith isn't about your feelings, but I'll be damned if my feelings don't impact my ability to relate to and connect with my faith. And I've experienced many times in my life where my mental health has taken me out of my prayer routine, leaving me trying to figure out how to get back. So I have a couple of thoughts on this question. First, give yourself space and time to go on this journey without judgment. It's a natural human experience to feel more connected to prayer and less connected to prayer at different points in our life. Even the greatest saints that we can all call to mind have had periods of intense connection to God and periods where their prayer life wasn't quite on track. So we have to give ourselves the space and time to get back on track when the time is right. We have to remember that God is patient and willing to allow us to go on this journey back to him, back to a solid prayer life. He understands why we are where we are at any given moment. He gets it. He's willing to meet us where we're at and wait for us. And there's something beautiful about that. Next, redefine what prayer is and what a good prayer life looks like. I think we all build up an idea of what it means to have a good prayer routine. I wake up, I pray the rosary, I pray the divine office, at least in the morning, in the night, the angels at noon, etc., etc. But saying all the prayers all the time isn't necessarily what a good prayer life is. During my most difficult times, I could only find myself muttering, Jesus, I trust in you in those tiny moments of grace. And that was it for quite a long time. 
but one truly offered up Jesus I trust in you might do more for my relationship with God than 10,000 rosaries when things aren't going well, right? It's, it's about laying ourselves out before God, putting everything on the table with him and crying out with all our messiness, all of our emotions, all of our anger, etc. That's what a good prayer life is all about. The relationship and willingness to be ourselves before God, not the externals as much. So last, pray with someone else. When I commit to praying with my wife, I'm a lot more successful than when I just tell myself I'm going to do something and try and do it on my own. And it's more enriching for my spiritual life and my relationship with her. So think of someone in your own life that you can commit to praying praying with once you're feeling better, a friend, a family member, even one of your children, and start small with them and slowly build up to the routine you're working towards. Having a prayer partner helps with accountability and helps us to better understand the purpose of prayer and what the Christian faith is all about. I hope that helps. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm going to introduce you to blessed Frederick Azanam. Born in 1813 in Milan, Italy, he was the fifth of his parents' 14 children, though only three would live to adulthood. While he was born in Milan, he was raised in Lyon, France. Growing up, he experienced a period of doubt regarding the Catholic faith, but he was influenced by one of his teachers at the College of Lyon, a priest named Father Nerat Andenenden, that's my best attempt at it, (laughs) who kept him close to the faith. We'll get some help from Wikipedia here. He took up journalism and started discussion groups with his friends. Their attention turned frequently to the social teachings of the gospel. At one meeting, during a heated debate with Azanam and his friends, they were trying to prove from historical evidence alone the truth of the Catholic Church as the one founded by Christ. Their adversaries declared that, though at one time the church was a source of good, it no longer was. One voice issued the challenge what is your church doing now? What is she doing for the poor of Paris? Show us your works and we'll believe in you. Because of that experience, in May 1833, Azanam and a group of other young men founded the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Frederick's first act of charity was to take his supply of winter firewood and bring it to a widow whose husband had died of cholera. And that's how it all started. He died in 1853 at the age of 40 and is recognized as the precursor of the Catholic Church's social doctrine, whose cultural and religious origins he wanted to know, and on which he wrote books which are still in great demand. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. We thank you, Lord, for all our many gifts, and we ask, if it is your will, the grace of a miracle for all who need it through the intercession of Blessed Frederick Azanam. May the Church proclaim his holiness as a saint, a providential light for today's world. Amen. And now, you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter Therapy. Anonymous gets us started. Lately, I've seen some trash talk of Richard Rohr on the timeline related to the recent interview with Audrey Assad. But as someone who is in a 12-step program and for whom the 12-step program does so much for my mental health and my faith, I find Richard Rohr so far enlightening and helpful. What can the controversy around the Audrey Assad interview teach us about how the church can better love those whose mental health struggles overlap with their faith struggles? And what the hell? Why does he get so much hate? 
I like the last part. Let's start by joining together in prayer for everyone whose mental health experience overlaps with their faith experience, which is pretty much all of us, that they may find compassionate understanding and support from the community around them. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I'm so glad you sent this question in and so glad that you found support and healing through a 12-step program. It's absolutely wonderful and a great example for everyone else who might benefit from such a program, which again is most of us really. Let's start with your first question, how the church can better love people whose experience with mental illness overlaps with their faith. So this is such an important question. It's the whole question actually of how the church needs to relate to us during our faith journey, how it can be understanding, open, compassionate, and helpful as we move forward through the struggle of life, through mental health experiences, and struggles associated with our faith. Aside from the sacraments, it may be the most important spiritual question facing our church in this moment in time. So, I mean, that's a lot of pressure, and I'm not going to be able to give the best complete answer, but I want to talk about where we start. We start with creating a community through our church where people feel heard, feel welcomed, feel loved, like truly loved, meaning treated as our sisters and brothers that that they are, not just like, sure, I love everyone, of course, as long as I don't have to do anything, but really, really loved. The church has to be comfortable being a place where we can be vulnerable with our human brokenness so we can start to realize that we aren't alone. Other people care about us and can help us. And so we can move together on our journey toward wellness and in relationship with each other and with God. The church isn't that place right now, and perhaps because of all the problems in our church that we all know too well, it might not have the capacity to be that anymore. After all, it's rightfully difficult for us to be willing to be vulnerable emotionally in our church these days, given everything we know. But this is where we have to remember that we are the church, you and me, and we can give our whole messed up suffering selves to those around us by being open about our mental health when we're able, by being compassionate and being active listeners, by creating a loving and supportive community among the laity that reaches out without having to get any kind of stamp of approval from the parish. It's not easy. I prefer to walk out of mass, go straight to our van, and go home. But I really see this intentional development of a true Christian community as the key. The key to a good relationship with God and our neighbor. The key to feeling the support of our Christian community that we kind of deserve, right? And the key to really helping each other with our struggles. Now, as for your why does Richard Rohr get so much hate question, I'll have to say I'm a little ignorant to all the stuff around him. I haven't read anything by him and really haven't delved into any of the ideas too deeply. Quickly having a look around, two thoughts come to mind. First, he seems to advocate for two things. One, a bottom-up approach to the church, which makes many people uncomfortable, though seems to have some merits if you think about the approach of Pope Francis. And two, a focus on living uh, as a sign of one's Christianity rather than merely uh, verbal orthodoxy, right? This seems obvious enough, but when it's put into practice, it makes certain folks nervous because it means we have to stand up for people who the church has generally ostracized, people who may make us uncomfortable. Obviously, this is a Christian approach, right? We're supposed to be with those on the margins, living among them, helping them. They are Christ to us, after all. But when some Christians see this uh, includes our LGBT sisters and brothers as an example, it makes them nervous and they might reject the idea outright. The second thing I notice is that 
Uh, many see his approach as universalism, or at least approaching it, and they have concerns that uh, some may read his ideas and decide that a vague spirituality is the right approach. Many criticize his teachings based on Eastern myth- mysticism rather than Christianity, and he seems to make people nervous with his ideas around the incarnation. So I'm not an expert, so I don't have a judgment one way or the other, but I do agree. I hope this moment on the timeline will inspire us to think more critically about how we interact with and support those going through mental health experience that directly impact their faith journey and how we talk about those who have chosen to step away from the church for any reason. I pray that we can show them unconditional compassion as a way of showing them the love of Christ rather than berating them for obviously not taking the time to learn their faith before they left it. Because come on, that's not helping anyone see the love of Christ. A different anonymous is up next. For those of us who struggle with anxiety at Mass, how do we address needing to walk out at times just to catch our breath? I worry that the priest will think it's something he said or did. I also worry that people will be judging me. It's also awkward trying to come back in during Mass without being a distraction, but I don't want to miss out on receiving Jesus in communion. The last thing I want is to draw attention to myself because that's only increasing my anxiety. But sometimes I physically can't sit still anymore if my anxiety is raging. Well, let's start by joining in prayer together for Anonymous and everyone living with anxiety within the context of Mass, for the peace of Christ to bring them comfort, and for a community to support them in that moment when they feel like they might be judged. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. First of all, I want to say how beautiful it is that you're willing to figure out a way to attend Mass while experiencing this intense anxiety. It truly shows your commitment and love for Christ. It's a beautiful witness. Anxiety is so, so hard. It's hard because it's something that other people at Mass can't really see or understand. Like you mentioned, we imagine they see someone getting up and walking out and and then think the worst about that person because anxiety isn't the first thing that comes to our mind when we see somebody walking out, right? But here's something important to try to drive home in our minds, all of our minds, including mine. Most people are so focused on what's going on for themselves that they really don't think twice about what someone else is doing. I might feel uncomfortable having to walk out of mass or a meeting at work for any given reason, assuming that everyone's watching me go and thinking judgmental thoughts about me. But in reality, they're all dealing with the exact same stuff that I'm dealing with, and they most likely aren't judging me in the way that I imagine. Of course, realizing that and thinking about that doesn't make all of my anxiety go away, right? It's not magical like that. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And so we're left with this. Number one, God wants us to do whatever we have to do in order to be comfortable at Mass with Him. He's okay with us having to get up, walk around, walk out, return when we're ready, etc. And while it does feel uncomfortable, given all the pairs of eyes at Mass, it's His understanding that we have to focus on. And He's unconditionally loving, accepting, and understanding of what we're going through. He gets it better than we get it ourselves, and He's willing to meet us where we're at. Number two, we have to work hard to be okay doing things that we need to do to cope with our mental health symptoms, regardless of the context. This is so hard because we've been trained to think that there are certain places or events that we aren't allowed to get up and move around at, but that's simply not true. We should be able to do the things we have to do to cope with our experiences, no matter the context, and this includes mass. But still, 
It's hard. So here are some other thoughts on coping skills we might be able to practice and utilize that can help us with our anxiety in the moment. And it comes from Anxiety Canada. Come back. When you catch yourself being caught up in worries about the future or guilt and regret about the past, just notice that it is happening and simply and kindly say to yourself, come back. Then take a calming breath and focus on what you're doing right now. Next, three senses. Another helpful mindfulness trick is simply to notice what you are experiencing right now through the three senses. What am I hearing? What am I seeing? And what am I feeling in my body, right? Like the pew underneath you. Next, take a few slow breaths and ask yourself, what are three things that I can hear? What are three things that I can see? The colors of the vestments, like anything, right? And what are three things I can feel? Kind of like I was mentioning, the pew, uh, maybe the air conditioning or heater kicking on, right? That's blowing near you. Think of these answers to yourself slowly, one sense at a time. Next, mindful breathing. Find your favorite breathing exercise to involve focusing on your breath to help settle your mind. All right, back to me. Square breathing is a favorite of mine. You can look it up. It's really great. And remember, if you have to get up and walk out, catch your breath until you're ready to come back, that's okay. It really really is. And when you're able to come back, no matter how long it takes, remember that Jesus is so happy to have you there. A third and final anonymous wraps us up. If I think I live with a narcissist or maybe someone with antisocial personality disorder, but moving isn't an option, how do I cope for the year and continually as a Catholic knowing that they work for the church? Let's join together in prayer for Anonymous, for the person they live with, for everyone experiencing narcissistic or antisocial personality disorder, and everyone around them who cares about them. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary, pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Amen. We love to start off with definitions around here. So let's go over to the DSM criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. First, we're talking about a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, fantasy or behavior, need for admiration, and with a lack of empathy beginning by early adulthood, as indicated by at least five of the following, has a grandiose sense of self-importance, like exaggerated achievements, expects to be recognized as superior without actually completing the achievements, is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, brilliance, beauty, or perfect love, believes that they are special and can only be understood um, by people who are special and should only associate with people who are special, requires excessive admiration, has a sense of entitlement such as unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment, is exploitative and takes advantage of others to achieve their own ends, lacks empathy and is unwilling to identify with the needs of others, is often envious of others or believes that they are envious of them shows arrogant, haughty behaviors and attitudes. So next, we'll look at the other diagnosis you mentioned, antisocial personality disorder, which is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others since age 15 years old, as indicated by three or more of the following. Failure to conform with social norms concerning lawful behavior, such as performing acts that are grounds for arrest. Number two is deceitfulness, repeated lying, use of um, aliases or conning others for pleasure or personal 
personal profit. Next, impulsivity or failure to plan. Then irritability and aggressiveness, often with physical fights or assaults. Reckless disregard for the safety of the self and others. Consistent irresponsibility, failure to sustain consistent work behavior or honor monetary obligations. Lack of remorse, this is a big one, being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another person. Uh, you have to be at least 18 years old, and the evidence of a conduct disorder is typically there with the onset before age 15. I hope you find that all as helpful as I do. Making sure we're all on the same page when we're talking about mental health experiences is very important. Now, in terms of how to cope with someone experiencing a personality disorder like this, we got to have a look at Healthline.com for some ideas. First, see them for who they really are. When they want to, those with these personality disorders can be pretty good at turning on the charm. You might find yourselves drawn to their grand ideas and promises. This can also make them particularly popular in work settings, but before you get drawn in, watch how they treat people when they're not on stage. Next, break the spell and stop focusing on them. When there's a personality disorder like this in your orbit, attention seems to gravitate their way, and that's by design. Whether it's negative or positive attention, those with these personality disorders work to keep themselves in the spotlight. So regularly remind yourself of your strengths, your desires, and your goals. Next, speak up for yourself. Be specific and consistent about what's acceptable and how you expect to be treated, but prepare yourself for the fact that they might not simply understand or care. Next, set clear boundaries. You have to be abundantly clear about the boundaries that are important to you. Just make sure it's not an idle threat. Talk about consequences only if you're ready to carry them out. Next, expect them to push back. If you stand up to someone with one of these personality disorders, you can expect them to respond. Once you speak up and set boundaries, they may come back with some demands of their own and be prepared to stand your ground. If you take a step backward, they won't take you seriously next time. Remember that you are not at fault. A person with one of these personality disorders isn't likely to admit a mistake or take responsibility for hurting you. Instead, they might project their own negative behaviors onto you or someone else. You might be tempted to keep the peace by accepting blame, but you don't have to belittle yourself to salvage their ego. Next, find a support system. If you can't avoid the person, try to build your own healthy relationships and support network of people. Spending too much time in a dysfunctional relationship with someone who has a personality disorder like these can leave you emotionally drained. Insist on immediate action, not promises. People with these personality disorders may be good at making promises. They promise to generally do better, and they might even be sincere about those promises. Ask for what you want and stand by your ground. Insist that you'll only fulfill their requests after they've fulfilled yours. Understand that narcissistic personality disorder and uh, antisocial personality disorder may need professional help. You can suggest that they reach out for professional help, but you can't make them do it. It's absolutely their responsibility, not yours. And recognize when you need help. Regularly dealing with someone who has a personality disorder like this can take a toll on your own mental and physical health. A health. If you have symptoms of anxiety, depression, or unexplained physical ailments, see your primary care doctor first, and once you have a checkup, you can ask for referrals to other services like therapy and support groups. Reach out to family and friends, and call your support systems into service. There's no need to go it alone. Back to me. 
I want to underscore something here because the coping strategies listed listed there might make uh, those of us experiencing personality disorders feel like a bad person, but this is certainly not the case. I think many of the tips that we find online are meant to drive home the importance of our loved ones acting in a specific way and therefore can come off as negative towards those of us who are suffering with these kind of mental health experiences. But please be assured that if you are living with a personality disorder, you are a good person. You are loved by God, and there is most definitely evidence-based treatment out there that you can get as you move forward toward wellness. As to the last part of the question, how do I cope as a Catholic knowing they work for the church? I would just say that simply having these mental health experiences does not in and of itself mean that we shouldn't be able to work in ministry or work for the church. And I would make sure that if you ended up saying something to someone in church or someone in charge of a ministry, that that you are doing so only after witnessing or knowing firsthand about behavior in these contexts that seems inconsistent with their role, right? I would be very careful not to let my emotions and experience at home play into such a serious decision. That's a tough one, but know that we'll be praying for you. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great stuff they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry, I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna.